you have a Bible with you, now's the time to pick that up and turn to Matthew chapter 19. Uh, it'll come up on the screen as well. Uh, if you don't have a Bible to hand, I'm going to invite Sarah up to come and read. And then straight after that, uh, Mike will come and preach. The reading is taken from Matthew chapter 19, verse 16, to chapter 20, verse 16, and can be found on page 986 of the Church Bible. Just then, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquired. Jesus replied, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony. Honour your father and mother, and love your neighbour as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad, because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Peter answered him, We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owners of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call up workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. 
When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. Well, shall we just uh, commit our time to the Lord? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you we can be here today. We thank you that uh, we can hear your word read. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear your word through your Holy Spirit tonight. Would you apply the word to our hearts and help us not just to be hearers of the word, but doers also. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'm going to start with uh, a question. Who was the more deserving of eternal reward? Peter, James, and John, the three of the great heroes of the faith, or a low-life thief who only turned to Jesus in his dying moments? Now, keep that question in your minds because we will come back to it later. And it helps to set up Jesus' parable in Matthew 20. It's a parable that concerns the unfair generosity of God. Now, the reason for the parable was found in Matthew 19, where Jesus is met by this rich young ruler. He's a, a very impressive young man. He's morally upright. He sincerely believes that he's kept all the requirements of the law. And who are we to argue with him? And he asks, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? In other words, is there anything else that I need to do? And incredibly, Jesus says, well, yes, there is actually. If you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come and follow me. Now, Jesus has just outlined the true way of discipleship. It's not outward adherence to law, but it's to give up the treasures in your heart and make Jesus your treasure. Because if you do, and this is Jesus now making this young man an unbelievable offer, if you do, if you give up your earthly treasures, you'll gain treasure in heaven. And the young man leaves with great sadness in his heart because he had great wealth. Because you see, for all his moral uprightness, he was attached to his wealth. It was part of his identity. He couldn't imagine life without all that security, all that status. And it prompts the famous comment of Jesus, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Unrighteous mammon is, is a snare, and it's still a snare to us today. Now, the disciples, upon hearing this, they are astonished. Because, you see, for them, wealth was a sign of God's blessing on a person. So, if the rich are excluded from heaven, well, what hope is there for anyone else? And if qualifying for heaven depends upon human worthiness, well, no, there isn't any hope for any of us, is there? But of course, as we know, qualification for heaven depends solely upon the grace of God. 
his unmerited favor to you and me, to sinners. And here's the thing, the grace of God knows no obstacle. Jesus says in verse 26, with man this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So you can forget human categories of worth. God's grace is mighty to save. And then the conversation takes a little twist. As usual, Peter, who tends to speak before thinking, he speaks on behalf of the other disciples. And he says out loud what no doubt all of them were thinking inside. And he says, we've left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Now, if we were to translate it, Peter is saying something like, look, Jesus, you promised that young man great wealth in heaven if he gave up his wealth on earth and he failed the test. But we haven't failed the test, have we? Look how much we've given up to follow you. So what about our reward? If you're offering treasure in heaven to any and every new disciple, what about people like us who sacrifice so much? Now, I suppose I've put it a little bit more crassly than Peter, but I hope you see the point. On the one hand, the disciples are looking for reassurance that their very real sacrifices for Jesus weren't going to go unrewarded. To put it another way, that it was worth it. But on the other hand, this is pride talking, isn't it? This is ego talking. The disciples, they want to receive special honor and recognition. They want higher places in God's eternal kingdom. Now, Jesus gives them an answer that both reassures them and challenges their pride. So, yes, they are going to receive great reward. They will have places of great honor in God's kingdom and glory. And yet, not just them. They're not special. This will be the case for all true disciples of Jesus. What does he say? Everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake, will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Now that last sentence is a proverb. It's a riddle, if you like. But what's it mean? Well, Jesus is going to amplify it by telling us the parable that we've got in our Bibles in Matthew 20. So let's go into the parable. There's a landowner, he's got a vineyard. Grapes planted in the spring are pruned in the summer and the crop will be brought in during the autumn harvest. It's around September time. Now, given the rainy season begins immediately after September, it's all hands on deck to ensure that the crop is gathered in before the rain comes. So the landowner goes out to find additional workers. He goes to the marketplace, it's the the nearest public place. It's a place he knows he will find men. People who aren't professional servants, who belong to a household, but they're unemployed, they're unskilled laborers. They're desperate for a daily wage to stay alive. The marketplace, I suppose, is the ancient equivalent of the temp agency. So the landowner goes down to the marketplace early morning, soon after sunrise, and there are already men there. It's a sign of their desperation. They need work. Yeah, I guess it's the principle of the early bird catches the worm. And the landowner immediately hires these workers for his vineyard. And what's more, he agrees to pay them 
a denarius. Now, that was extremely generous. The denarius was the standard pay for a professional household servant or perhaps a soldier in the Roman army. It was respectable money. It was good pay. It was not the kind of money you would give to a temp for a day's work. But it's the measure of the man. This landowner is generous with his money. He's clearly got a big vineyard and there's plenty of work needed as well. So he goes back to the marketplace at 9am, which is the third hour, three hours after sunrise. Gets some more men. He does the same at noon, the sixth hour, and at 3pm, which is the ninth hour, and more and more men are joining his band of workers. And as daylight starts to run out and there's still work to be done, he returns to the marketplace at the proverbial 11th hour. It's about 5pm. And there are still men standing about, not because they're idle, but simply because they haven't been offered any work. It's a bit like if you were at school and you know you were the last kid to be chosen for the football team, or you you know you, you were the one who had to go in goal or something like that. It may be that these were men who were the least desirable. Perhaps they had been deliberately passed over. We don't know. But the landowner is desperate. He needs all the help he can get, and so they are hired as well. Well, as the sun goes down and evening draws in, the working day comes to an end. And as is the common practice, the foreman calls the workers over and he pays their wage. Now, rather unusually, he starts by paying those who join last. And the original workers who'd been there since the beginning, he pays last, and it's it's the people who join last who he pays first. But that's not the only surprise. Because when everyone has received their wage, to their astonishment it's very clear that everyone has received the same wage. It's a denarius each for each man. And if a denarius was generous for a a day temp, it was untold riches for an hour's work. Now, unfortunately, the original workers are offended. They don't see this as generosity. They see this as unjust. It's unfair. And they grumble to the landowner. This isn't fair. Those men... Who, who were hired last day and he worked one hour and yet you've made them equal to us and we've borne the burden of the day. We've been here for 12 hours. No, they've got a point, haven't they? Well, the landowner calmly replies, he addresses the lead spokesman and he says, friend, I'm not being unfair to you, am I? Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? Now, there's nothing they can say to that. There's nothing that can be said. The man is the owner. It's, it's his money. It's his choice. Nobody has been shortchanged. Far from it. And summing up, Jesus says, So the last will be first, and the first will be last. It's another proverb. It's like the one at the beginning. It says the same sort of thing. So if we tie those two verses together, the parable is bookended with this saying, many who are first will be last, many who are last will be first, so the last will be first, and the first will be last. The question is, what does that mean? We know, for example, that elsewhere in Mark 9, 
Jesus says, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. Mark 10, whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. Now, in those two passages, Jesus is very clearly speaking of the attitude of humility that has to characterize every servant of Jesus, every one of God's people. Because after all, Christ came not to be served, but to serve. And we're to imitate that attitude. But that's not the point that Jesus is making here. The last will be first, and the first will be last. It is quite simply a statement of fact. Think of a race where every competitor, regardless of where they started, finishes at exactly the same time. Now, we call that a dead heat, wouldn't we? Nobody wins, and yet everybody wins. The last to first, the first to last, is basic equality. And that is the scenario in this parable. Those who strived in the vineyard for 12 hours and those who only worked for one hour, they receive the same payment. There's basic equality. Everybody wins, everybody gets the prize. And when it comes to being a disciple of the Lord Jesus, nobody loses out and everybody wins. You see, Peter and the other disciples, quite naturally because they were human, they wanted to feel unique and special. You know, we're your special called out disciples, Lord. You know, you've marked us out. We were the first to follow you. You know, we want pride of place and glory to mark us out as special, you know, in heaven. And Jesus says, well, I've got news for you. You're nothing special. Of course you're not. That's the point. It's all of grace. And that's what this parable is really all about. The basis of our salvation, the currency of the Christian life, and it's grace, God's unfair, unmerited generosity to us. So the landowner in the parable, he symbolizes sovereign almighty God. The vineyard, it's a picture of God's kingdom, his realm, the sphere of his rule. The workers in the vineyard, well, they are Christians, people like us. People ransomed by God, brought into his kingdom, set to work in his vineyard, the world. And until the evening draws in, and the daytime of our lives ends, we're called to serve him, saved to serve. Now, our service will vary. How we use our gifts for the Lord will vary. Our circumstances, our trials, our successes, our failures, it all looks very different from one person to the next. And yet ultimately we are all under the authority of the same Lord and Master. We have the same Spirit indwelling our hearts. We're all given access to the same grace. And at the end of the working day, whether death comes for us or Christ returns out of the sky first, we all alike receive our reward, which is eternal life in glory, a place in God's paradise forever with Jesus. And here's the thing. That reward is not dependent upon the length of our Christian service. It's not dependent upon the quality or consistency of our Christian service. And it's not dependent upon the fame or notoriety of our Christian service. Let's come back to my opening question. Who was 
the more deserving of eternal reward. Peter, James and John, these great heroes of faith, or a low-life thief? Now, from a human perspective, I think we would say that Peter, James and John were far better Christians than the dying thief. They achieved more. They led more people to Jesus. They discipled people for him. They wrote parts of God's word. They were martyred for Christ. And the dying thief, well, he just, he lived a life of crime. He was deservedly put to death. And he only turned to Jesus when, cynically speaking, he didn't have any other choice. He didn't have time to be baptized, did he? Didn't have time to write an epistle. And yet that poor, sinful wretch did all that any person can ever do. He simply turned to Jesus and he depended upon Jesus with all his heart for salvation. Because that's all anyone can do. And therefore he received the same reward as Peter, James and John. The same reward as you and me. Eternal life with Christ. Everybody wins. Now there are passages that appear to speak of degrees of reward for the saints in heaven. So the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, that's one example. But that parable is not about who's going to get the biggest mansion in heaven, who's going to have the biggest crown on their head. Perhaps a better phrase to use about that parable is degrees of responsibility. The level of responsibility a believer will be given in heaven will vary according to service rendered in this life. Jesus says, you have been faithful with a few things, I will put you in charge of many things. But as for the actual reward, salvation, eternal life in heaven with Christ, instead of going to hell, well, that's the same for all of us. Because there are not classes of Christian. There, there aren't first-class Christians and second-class Christians. Eternal life is not like the fancy golf club where there are gold members and you walk in and you're only a bronze member and they say you can't walk across that rope there because that's for gold members and you're only a bronze member. Yes, responsibilities in eternity will vary, but there won't be parts of heaven that are out of bounds for you. The reward of glory with Christ is not dependent on any of the variables that we might think of to assess the performance of a Christian. The reward is simply dependent on Christ. His atoning blood, his resurrection life. Now, is that fair? What about the faithful believer who served the Lord faithfully for 50 years on the mission field? Shouldn't there be some special kind of reward to distinguish him over someone who perhaps lived a really reckless, sinful life and only turned to the Lord on his deathbed? Well, I guess there are two answers to that. First, it was only by God's grace that the missionary could have ever served the Lord for 50 years. Couldn't have done it by his own strength. And second, that missionary isn't going to lose out. He's still going to receive reward beyond measure. Remember how the landowner offered a denarius to those temp workers, those unskilled laborers. And I said before, didn't I, that that alone would have been unbelievable wages for these people, beyond their wildest dreams. So you see, far from being unfairly treated, those people who'd worked for 12 hours were totally indebted to the landowner. 
He'd chosen them. They hadn't chosen him. And he had rewarded them generously. And in the same way, Jesus says, look, God is no man's debtor. Nobody deserves eternal life. No one's entitled to God's reward. And if it was a simple case of fairness, well, nobody would enter heaven because all have sinned. All fall short of God's glory. But God's grace is extraordinary, isn't it? God's grace does the impossible. God's grace creates a way for people who were enemies of God in their minds, dead in their transgressions and their sins, to be saved. And Jesus is that way. The only man who ever deserved eternal life, yet he was cut off from the land of the living. He was crushed on the cross so that through him, all who trust in him may enter God's vineyard and serve God for unbelievable reward abundance of eternal life. Why? Because of who God is. He's extravagantly generous. I think the Lord would echo the answer of that landowner. Don't I have a right to do what I want with my own money? Don't I have a right to show grace to whoever I want to show it to? And no, the dying thief on the cross didn't deserve this. That reckless sinner who perhaps turned to Jesus just before they died, they didn't deserve it. But neither does the long-serving missionary. Neither do Peter, James and John. Neither do we. You see, if those, if those vineyard workers had been plucked off the scrap heap by the owner, well, that's the case for you and me. I know that some of you here may have been serving the Lord in his vineyard for decades and you've grown You've grown in knowledge and in grace and understanding and maturity. But, you know, in another sense, every one of us here is in the same position as we were way back in the beginning. Helpless sinner, trusting in the Savior. Never lose sight of grace. It is the currency of the Christian life. It's the, the basis of salvation. It's not by baptism. It's not by church membership. Nothing in my hands I cling, simply to thy cross I cling. It's as the, uh, the old um, John Newton in the 18th century, former sailor, former blasphemer, who became a Christian, he came to the end of his life and he famously said, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I'm a great sinner and Christ is a very great saviour. So where does that leave us? Well, let me just outline three brief lessons for us before we close. First, in the light of grace, there should be no place for envy or for competition in our Christian lives. Now, there's a rather ugly expression in verse 15. Are you envious because I am generous? And the New King James Version puts it rather more interestingly. Is your eye evil? Because I am good. See, there was something of this in Peter's question to Jesus. There was an element of pride and conceit there. And it was ugly. Because salvation isn't a human endeavor. God's sovereign over it. Why doesn't God save absolutely everyone? Why are some saved so late in their lives? We don't know. These questions are a matter for God alone. They're the secret things of God. We're not to speculate over them. And we're not to allow them to cause division or competition among us. The wonder is that anyone can be saved. 
even me. And that should be enough. I'm reminded of another occasion when the risen Lord Jesus is on the, the, the seaside shore. He's with Peter. And he tells Peter what kind of death he's going to die. And it's not a nice one. He's going to die on the cross. He's going to be crucified. And Peter looks around and John is behind him. And Peter says, well, what about John? I mean, if I'm going to have to die a horrible death, I hope something horrible is going to happen to John. <laughs> it wouldn't really be fair, would it, if I have to die? And, and what does Jesus say? He says, what's that to you? If he doesn't die until I return, so be it. And if we were putting it in modern parlance, it would be, mind your own business. Competition is futile and envy is ugly and Christian lives can be shipwrecked by such things. God deals with individuals and while the end destination is identical, it will look different during this life for every person. It's not a case of fairness, it's a case of divine wisdom. Some won't serve very effectively. Some won't serve for very long. There may be some who trust and believe in Jesus just a matter of minutes before Jesus appears out of the sky to end the world. And none of us will serve perfectly. But ultimately it doesn't matter. All discipleship is a matter of God's grace and the reward is always the same. Eternal life in glory, honouring God's kingdom. And it's open to all who believe. It's more than we deserve and it's enough. So let's revel in the wonder of our salvation. And may we not be sidetracked or consumed by pointless comparisons and what other people are doing. Because, secondly, there is still work to be done, isn't there? The evening, the end of the day, that's when Christ will return. But as long as it remains the gospel day, well, we remain laborers in the vineyard for the Lord. And living and witnessing for Jesus, sharing his gospel, that's what we're called to do. And that's needed today as much, if not more, than it's ever been needed. Jesus said in John 9, 4, as long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. Now that puts it starkly, doesn't it? There's a day coming when no more people can be saved. So how vital it is that as long as it remains day, each one of us here is involved in that labor, pointing people to Christ, winning people for Christ, living for Christ, serving him in his vineyard, in this world. And so rather than getting distracted by looking superficially at the Christian performance of another believer, let's keep the Lord as our own individual focus. Let us do the works and be the people that we were chosen in advance of this world to do and to be. And then thirdly, and finally, I think we can be reassured. I think that is what Peter and the others wanted more than anything else. Yes, there was selfish pride there, but Peter wasn't lying. He and the others, they really had given up everything for Jesus. Was it worth it? I wonder if you've asked that question. Is it worth it? Everything I've done, everything I've given up for the Lord, all the mockery, all the difficulties... Was it worth it? Well, is there anyone in this parable who doesn't receive payment? Does anyone here get shortchanged? No. 
Even those first workers who worked the full 12 hours, they received far more than they deserved or expected. The master kept his promise and then some. And if you're a believer here, the Lord will keep his promise to you. The promise is certain because the promise keeper is faithful. He's the faithful king of love. He's the king of heaven. He's promised to never leave you and never forsake you and to one day present you faultless before his heavenly throne with great joy. If there's any change in the promise, it will simply be one of perception on our part. For when we do arrive in glory, we will realize that the promise was far greater, far greater than anything we could ever ask for or imagined. Christ is always worth it. And when the saints in glory stand around the throne room of God, there isn't going to be any comparisons, no finger pointing, no jealousy. Nobody's going to be feeling unhappy or, or shortchanged in any way. To just be there and, and to see the Lord face to face, that will be enough. There's a lovely hymn with a verse that I'm going to close with. It says, The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my King of grace, not at the crown he gifteth, but on his pierced hand. The Lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. Shall we pray? Our dear Lord and, and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for your undeserved, unmerited favor to us. Lord, we, we deserve nothing. And even as believers, we've often failed you, but we thank you for your unfailing, steadfast love and mercy to us. And we thank you that heaven to come is not something that is going to be held and maybe it will be taken away. It's sure, it's certain. It's our unfading inheritance. Our Lord, we do thank you. We do praise your name for your grace. And most of all, we thank you for your son and everything he's done for us. Lord, thrill our hearts, warm our hearts, stir our hearts. With the wonder of our salvation, we pray. For Jesus' sake. Amen.